0: Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, go and open up to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. We'll be there in just a little bit. But if you're new or you're visiting, my name is Tyler. I'm a campus pastor here and one of our preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. And if you showed up today, we are in uh, the last week of our three-week series on money. So we started this series actually because we're going through the book of Exodus. And as we're going through the book of Exodus, we came to the story of them building the tabernacle. And so to build a tabernacle, God commanded his people, hey, I need y'all to give to me from, from the possessions I gave to you as you left Egypt, I need you to give to me. And what's incredible is they brought so much silver, so much gold, that Moses had to tell them to stop. We have too much gold, too much silver. Could you imagine saying that? I have too much gold, okay? We have too much, please stop. And so as we saw this story of incredible generosity, here's what we thought. We thought, that's amazing. And then Jesus talks about generosity, talks about money more than any other topic in his ministry. So we thought it would be really good for us, really wise for us as a church to take three weeks, slow down and think about what does it mean to follow Jesus faithfully with our money? Because to be completely honest with you, if we are serious as a church about we want to follow Jesus together, if that's true, then we have to talk about our money. We have to. If, we, if we're not serious about following Jesus, let's talk about whatever we want to talk about. If we actually want to follow him faithfully and all the life that he has in him, then we have to talk about money. So the first week of the series we looked at is Money, Your God. And then last week we looked at about the issue of tithing. If you missed any of those sermons, go check those out online. But here's my hope. My hope is that as you listen to those sermons, you thought about, if you've been here, you thought about the, your money in your life, I hope you've begun to wrestle with this I I hope that as you have thought about all that God says about money and possessions and all that you have, the clothes on your back right now, as you think about that, I hope you've begun to wrestle with, what does this look like? Jesus makes stark claims. He says you can't love God and money and that you will love one or the other. He makes stark claims about how important money is in following him. He taught on it so much because he knows how often you and I wander into treating money as if it's God. Because money, like nothing else, it comes to you with promises. Now, money doesn't talk to you, but within money, there are these unsaid, unvoiced promises. If you get a lot of me, you'll have future security. You get a lot of me, you'll have approval from other people. You get a lot of me, you'll have social power. You get a lot of me, you can go to any restaurant you want, any vacation you want, all the comforts that you can dream of if you get enough of me. Money, like nothing else, comes to you with these counter offers as opposed to God. It comes to you with these offers of, if you get me, you don't need God. You can just use him for the stuff that you want for religious things, but if you really want life, you have to go to money, that's what money says. Because all the ways that money comes to you with promises of security and control and comfort and power, all those things are lies, they're counterfeit. It promises I'll be with you and yet you die and you can't take money with you. Yet you can't maintain the relationship, yet you can't quite get that happiness that you thought you'd get with money or you hate yourself and your life because you don't have enough money. Money is a counterfeit God. It comes to you with all these promises it can't fulfill all these promises that only God could give to you. Only God can provide, only God can protect, only God can secure your future, only God can satisfy you. And that's why Jesus talks so much about money because we're so easily drawn into trusting it in all the ways which you trust God so easily drawn into worshiping it and following it and planning our lives around it and building our hope in it the way we're only meant to do with God. That's why talking about money and possessions can feel so uncomfortable. That's why talking about it makes us kind of go, oh, I want to check out so bad. Because there's so much more at stake than just your money. There's so much more at stake than just your stuff. Your worship of God God is at stake. Your following of Jesus is at stake here. That's why it's so important. That's why we get uncomfortable. God is after your money because he's after your heart. He's after your heart. And the best way to your heart, to your life, is through your money and through your possessions. That's why he talks about it as often as he does because he wants every part of your life, not just some not just Sundays, he wants every single part. So last week, here's what we did, we studied the concept of a tithe in the Bible. Now I won't repeat the entire sermon, but what we found out is in the Old Testament, God makes it really clear, I want a tenth of all that you have. It's really clear uh, clear throughout the entire Old Testament that God wanted a tenth from his people, 10% of all they have, all that they earn should go to him and his purposes, and the reason being, he wants to teach them, all that you have is mine. And he's more trustworthy than money. But then when you get to the New Testament, you don't find the tithe brought up as often as it is in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you don't find the same sort of specificity about how much you should give. God commands us to give. He commands you to give, but it's not as specific. He doesn't give the number as often. I mean, tithing is is in the New Testament, but it's not as consistent. It's not as consistent. It's not not brought up as often as it is in the old. See, Jesus himself, he actually addresses tithing. I don't know if you know that, but he himself addresses tithing. As he's condemning the religious leaders who are forsaking the word of God, he brings up their tithe in Matthew 23, verse 23. Here's what Jesus says. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. See, these leaders, they were obeying God's word so strictly, they were even tithing on their spices. Could you imagine the amount of discipline that takes to come and then giving it to the priest going, here's my 10% of my dill. Thank you, I guess. I don't have to do with this. That's how strict they were. But these were classic religious stereotypes of people who were very disciplined and very far from God. See, the, the classic stereotype for religious people is that you're really disciplined in your personal life, but with other people, you don't practice fairness or justice or kindness or generosity or love towards other people. And so Jesus calls them out. But notice what Jesus corrects in them. And that text, notice what he corrects. He doesn't say tithing doesn't matter. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that loving people trumps tithing. He doesn't condemn their giving. He says, you should be tithing. That's what he said. You should be tithing and not neglecting the weightier things of the law. It's clear in that text that Jesus assumes that you should tithe and obey the rest of the Bible. It's clear in this text, but why is it In the rest of the New Testament, it doesn't come up as often. It doesn't really come up again in the rest of the New Testament. Why doesn't God say, here's the percentage I want from you? Why doesn't he say it again and again and really press the issue to say, okay, I want 12%, I want 13%, whatever the number is, why doesn't he do that? If God cares so much about your money and your possessions and how you handle those things, why doesn't he get more specific? Now, here's one of my fears for us. One of my fears for us is that we would take what seems like ambiguous commands to give and that we would interpret that by saying things like, God doesn't care about what you give. He only cares about your heart. I fear that for us. I fear that you and I would interpret the grace of God to mean he doesn't care if you give or not so long as you feel and sense the love of God. I fear that you and I would think God's mercy means that he's fine with whatever you decide, whatever you decide, so long as you know he loves you. That is not the reason God does not give us a new specific number to hit. That's why Jesus assumes tithing, but he doesn't keep talking about it in the rest of the epistles. Now, Jesus and the apostles don't make a forceful argument for 10% because there's a new Standard in the New Testament. There's a new standard. And the new standard is not 10% for God, 90% for me. That's not the new standard. The new standard is not 10%, 90%. The new standard is 100% for Jesus. That's the new standard. The new standard is 100% of your money, your possessions, your resources for him. See, there isn't a specific number in the New Testament because Jesus warrants everything. He warrants everything. He may be what seems like ambiguous on the specific number you should give. He is very clear that all that you have must be his in order to follow him. See, in some ways, the concept of tithing is easier. It's easier even though it feels more rigid. It's easier, because while it may be difficult for you and I, maybe to get to 10%, and it may take time to get to 10%, once, with that tithing concept, once you get to 10%, the rest is yours to do what you want. See, the, the, the thing about a number is you can work yourself to that number and say, okay, that's all that God can ask of me. See, in some ways, you and I really want a new number so we can know that God's reach in our life has limits. This is why you and I want a number. Yeah, we, we want clarity. Yeah, we want to know for succeeding or failing. But deep down, the reason we want a number is because we want to know that God's authority has limits. See, we want to view our lives as if us and God are like two warring nations who come together and make a compromise and a treaty and new boundaries. That's what we want. Because if you're a Christian, you still have sin in you, and your sin wars against the authority of God. It doesn't want it. But you know, you know, I can't get rid of God. I can't get rid of his word. I can't do that. So here's what I'll do. Compromise. I'll even concede 10% if that means you can't speak a word into the other 90. That's what we do. That's what your sin wants. Your sin is really cunning and strategic. It'll say, I'll give up some power. I'll give up some decision-making. I'll even give up some money, but he cannot have all of it. That's why we want a number, so we can know his power, his authority has limits. But this is where Jesus is fundamentally different. Listen, you want to follow Jesus? He does not demand 10%. He demands everything. He demands everything. He demands all that you have, and not in a general, theoretical sort of way, like, I'm saying it, but I don't really mean it, wink, wink kind of thing. No, Jesus means everything in a very real, tangible, specific, change your schedule, change your outlook, change your budget sort of way. And Jesus wants everything. The Jesus who reigns in heaven right now, over us right now, wants everything. Everything, he demands everything. See, Jesus has unparalleled authority. Unparalleled authority, so he commands us to renounce all we have. Not just leaders, everybody who follows him, he says, you must renounce all that you have, so he has unparalleled authority, and also he has superior joy. He satisfies desires no one else can. So he also compels us to want to give everything. His authority commands us to renounce and his joy and satisfaction we get from him compels us to want to give everything away. Every time I read the gospels, I mean every time I'm staggered by his authority. I mean when I read the gospels I just, I don't know anyone like him. I don't know anyone with that authority, with that confidence, with that security I mean, he makes claims that he's the eternal, infinite God in the flesh. I mean, think about the authority of these claims. He says, I'm the son of God. I'm the infinite, eternal God made flesh. He says, I'm the only way to God. There is no other way but through me. He says, I'm going to resurrect all who believe in me up from the dead one day, never to die again. Think about that authority. He showcases his authority by healing diseases and calming storms and raising people from the dead and teaching with such truth that it shuts the mouth of every single critic he has. And even when people say, Jesus, I would like to follow you, but I'd like you to change a couple things about you, he says, I will not change my teaching, my instruction, my character, my demands. You either submit to me or you leave. And they say, well, I'm gonna leave. He says, that makes me sad, but so be it. Jesus has unparalleled authority. And he's not here to talk about what we should do. He's a king who brought a kingdom that says, you follow and I lead. All of your life. That's why Jesus talks about our possessions. He says things like this, Luke 14, 33. This is to every single person who wants to follow him. He says, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple the same jesus who says my yoke is easy my burden is light says so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple jesus isn't interested in negotiation he's not asking you if you'd like to compromise, he's not interested in sharing leadership with anything that you own. He does, and he, Listen, he doesn't even say exactly what that's going to mean. He doesn't even say how much you'll have to give or how much you'll have to give away. He doesn't say that. It could be 10%, it could be 20%, it could be 90%. He doesn't say. All he says is you have to renounce ownership over all that you have you have to come into this relationship with the expectation i don't run things here that's what he says and this is scarier than 10% isn't it where's the compromise where're the limits where are the checks and balances there are none with jesus there are none with him absolute control and leadership over all things because he has unparalleled authority And he says, you must renounce all to have me. So not only that, as he say, he commands you to renounce, but on the other hand, he has such joy that he compels you to want to give. Jesus tells a parable about what it's like when you see him. What it's like when you see him for who he is and his kingdom for what it is. Here's the parable he tells of how much joy there is in that. He says... Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He says, when you finally see me for who I am, like today, when you finally see me for who I am, it's like you found hidden treasure, This treasure that had been there in the ground had just been hidden. You've been walking over it. You didn't even realize it. And then you found it. And this treasure was so great, it wasn't just enough for you to know the treasure existed in the ground. You had to have it. You had to have it. You had to make sure that nothing and no one could get in the way of you having this treasure for yourself. Because this treasure outweighs every single thing you have. It's more valuable, this by itself is more valuable than all that you've worked for, all that you've earned, all that you've gained, all that you've even planned for yourself for the rest of your life. You see this treasure and you go, it's better. I have to have it. And so then you enjoy, you go sell all that you have, everything you have that everyone else is striving after. They want it so bad, clinging to it. You say, I'm willing to give it away. Why? It's completely rational to give all things away if you found something superior. That's what he says it's like. He says, when you see me in my kingdom, all of a sudden, this money, this stuff, it loses its luster and its power over you. Why? It's a rational decision. You found something superior than all that you have. You thought you had power. You thought you had security. You thought you had life until you found this treasure. That's what it's like. When you see him, that's what it's like. When, when you finally see him for who he is, that's what happens. When, when you see how merciful he is, how patient he is for people as inconsistent as us, when you see his long suffering and you see his compassion towards those who are hurting and overwhelmed, when you read about and hear his promises and hope and victory over the evil in this world, over suffering and death, when you experience the refreshment of unmerited forgiveness that forgives you of the guilty conscience and enables you to forgive other people how they've wronged you, when you get to see Jesus for who he is, he just gets more satisfying. And not just the first time. Every time along the way when you're finally get the stuff out of your way and you finally see him for who he is, every time your heart goes, of course, every time you see him and you think, of course, why wouldn't I give him everything? Every time you see him, that's what happens, that's what he says, because Jesus commands us and compels us to give everything to him. We don't know all that it will mean, but Everything is on the table, why? Superior treasure, superior authority. He knows where life is, I follow him. See, the New Testament ethic is not 10% for him. It's 100% for him. That's the ethic, that's the teaching, that's the instruction. So then here's the question, what does that mean? What does that look like? I mean, how do you realistically follow Jesus faithfully with all that you have? Does that mean, Tyler, like I can't save anything? Does that mean I need one shirt for every for like five days a week and that's it? I can't buy any shirts more than that? Like what does it mean practically? Listen, there are so many different ways I could answer those questions. I'm not gonna be able to answer every single situation that comes in your mind, but here's the thing. Here's what your sin wants to do. Your sin wants to create a scenario where you don't have to take this serious. Your sin wants to create a scenario in your mind, well, he hasn't considered my particular situation, so there's no way for me to be faithful to Jesus, I might as well keep living my life the way that I normally do. It's unrealistic. When you think following Jesus is impossible or unrealistic, that's probably more evidence, and it definitely is more evidence of your own heart, not that it's impossible to follow Jesus. So if I don't answer your question in this, don't think there's no answer. That's why we're a church. We're more than just one sermon each week. We're a church, we're a people, and there are people in this room who can help you, leaders who can help you process through, what does it look like for you to follow Jesus faithfully? I wanna give you two principles. I wanna give you two principles to think about what does it mean to look at all that you have, to lay it all on the table and say, how do I follow Jesus faithfully with all that I have? Two things, seek God's kingdom first, Seek God's kingdom first, and secondly, consistently reassess your generosity. So when Jesus taught us to pray, we taught us, okay, you want to know how to pray? Here's what you pray. In that Lord's Prayer, he's teaching us not just what to pray, but what to value. The Lord's Prayer is teaching you, what should I be requesting to God? He doesn't say the Lord's Prayer is pray whatever's on your heart. No, he says, no, pray then like this. He wants wants us to know, here are the values that that should define your requests and define your life, including your money, so listen to Matthew 6, nine through 10. Here's what Jesus says, he says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the first thing we pray and the first thing we give towards is God's kingdom, not ours. God's kingdom, not ours. Could you imagine, could you imagine, let's say you're sitting in a prayer circle. If you're not a believer in here and you don't know what a prayer circle is, imagine a circle of people feeling uncomfortable and saying words they don't understand, okay? Imagine that, okay? Glory, Lord, glory, over and over again, okay? Father, Lord, God, a lot. Okay, you say that, imagine that, okay? So imagine a prayer circle and someone prays, Father, hallowed be your name. God, help me bring my kingdom. God, help my will be done at work as it is at my home. If they prayed that, you would think, that's a bold prayer. I don't know if is the right word, but that's a bold prayer. That's what you would think. We would know, you should not pray, God, let my kingdom come, let my will be done. You know that, but we tend to budget like that but we tend to budget like that. We tend to look at our finances and our first thought is not God's kingdom, it's our dreams, our desires, our kingdom purposes. We look at all that we have and we go, okay, we let our kingdom values of what is needed define it. What our culture tells us what is necessary to live define it. We let our expectations of the lifestyle we want or our family wants or our mom and dad have for us, we let that define it for us. And we let the future that we want, that we desire, the future weddings, the future college funds, the future whatever, those things define our finances. So often we look at our budget and we don't think God's kingdom, we think ours. And Jesus is saying your budget needs to start with God's kingdom superseding yours. So now his kingdom and his values define what is needed for life. What's needed? What's necessary? What's the baseline of taking care of yourself and your family? His kingdom now defines that. His kingdom now defines what kind of lifestyle should I aim for? What if that lifestyle makes other people feel uncomfortable? God says, my kingdom, not yours, not theirs either, his. And then his kingdom says, here's the future you should aim for. Here's the future you should aim for. We let his kingdom Advancing on this earth be our primary driving force. Look at all that we have, and we say, how can I fund God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven? That's why I, along with other, the thousands of other people who are partners of this church, we've made a commitment to give. make the baseline, the starting point of our giving to be 10% to this local church. That's why we've done that. We've done that because we believe in the, this people, this mission, this vision. We believe that this is what God wants us to be a part of. And can I tell you this, I, I don't give 10% to this church as my baseline, my starting point. I don't do it just because of obedience. That's part of it. I do it partly because I want to be obedient to the text and I want to guard myself from love of money. But also I do it because it's strategic. I want to see God's kingdom advance and I don't think you could find group of people who are advancing the kingdom of God the way the people in this room and people in this church around this city are doing it. I mean, God has used this church and all that she is and all of the difficulties and all of our sins. He has still used us to send hundreds of people to other people groups who have no access to the kingdom of God because they don't have access to the gospel. God has used this church to send even more people thousands of people to serve the marginalized and the oppressed and the poor in this city because we want to show this city, in the kingdom of God, the poor, the orphan, the widow, they are championed in the kingdom of God. God has used this church to bring people who were far from the kingdom of God into it. People who are consumers to participants, those who were broken into recovery. God is using this church, and I'm happy I am happy to be one of the many people whose generosity funds it, but listen, we can't, we can't let 10% be our cap, we can't. If we're gonna follow Jesus once again and, and go for his approval and his applause, we can't. And honestly, especially us, do you know how blessed we are? Do you know how prosperous we are, though you may not feel it, though you're thinking, no, you don't understand my, we are one of the most prosperous people and it's not that God doesn't love us, he still loves us, there's just more responsibility. We can't let 10% be the cap on the desires that we have for God's kingdom to come on this earth. Everything we have is his, right, to follow him, everything you have is his. So that means doing crazy things like sacrificing what you could have so other people can get what they need. Sacrificing what you could have and maybe even justify looking at the people around you so that other people can get what they desperately need both spiritually and physically. Jesus doesn't give a percentage for our giving because if you and I only give out of our excess, we still don't understand understand what it means to put his kingdom first. I'm going to read you a quick story from the Gospels in Luke 21. Listen to this. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Jesus doesn't commend any percentage given out of excess. That has rocked my world this week. Doesn't say he doesn't love it, doesn't say it's not good, he just, he doesn't commend it. He doesn't denounce the the rich for giving, he just doesn't commend it. You could give 30% of your income And still not be giving in the ways that Jesus Himself commends. You could be giving 50%, 90%. He commends costly giving. That's what He's commending in this text. He praises the giving of smaller amounts of money because it costs the giver more, it costs them more. He praises it, He commends it. That's what generosity looks like. He doesn't need your money, He doesn't need my money. I mean, think about this poor widow. Two copper coins are probably not gonna advance the kingdom in significant ways in the ways that probably we're thinking. But Jesus is saying, I don't need your money. I own everything. He's saying, I want all of you. And so as you, when you give when it costs, when you give when it hurts, that's the generosity Jesus commends. A kingdom first attitude says, I will hurt other line items in my budget and I'll even sacrifice good desires for the sake of his kingdom. Listen, I'm under no illusion that that you guys, like the the things that we're saving for, the things that we wanna use our money for are all evil things. Like I doubt any of you are saving up for some evil, nefarious purpose. If you are, we should probably talk about it. Um, We're saving up for good things. Save enough for good things that are are neutral things that are great if you want them. But a kingdom first mentality says, even good things go on the altar for the sake of God's kingdom. As usual, um, C.S. Lewis says this better than I can. He says, in mere Christianity, he says, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charity's expenditure excludes them. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charity's expenditure excludes them. So here's a real practical question for you and for for me. When's the last time we gave up something in our budget, not because we were making less or spending more, but because we were giving away more? When's the last time you consciously said, I'm gonna go without that for the sake of giving, not just because I make less money, I mean, are we giving in such a way that it limits our eating out? Like, that's a real practical thing for Austin. We love to eat. Amen. Amen. I'm going with that guy later to lunch, you and me. You are paying. Um, does it limit our eating out? Does it limit... Are we can getaways? Does it limit our vacations? Does it limit our lifestyle in any way that our coworkers and our peers who don't know Jesus or aren't really following Jesus don't have to? Or do we, without even thinking about it, make our non-believing friends our standard of generosity? We think, well, they're doing it, why can't I? Are we sacrificing anything for his kingdom? If we're gonna follow Jesus... If we're gonna follow Jesus, you have to ask that question. I don't know the, listen, I don't know the answer to that question for every single one of you, but if you're unwilling to ask the question, something's wrong with your heart. If you're already stiff-arming me and saying, that's ridiculous or whatever, I'll figure out a way, you're not really asking the question of your life, wait, what does it mean for me to give up anything to follow Jesus financially? If you're not willing to ask that question, that's a very bad sign. So first, we seek his kingdom and then second, really practically, we need to consistently reassess our generosity. We need to reassess our generosity. Listen, money is so alluring and it's so spiritually dangerous. It's so spiritually dangerous that you have to constantly, constantly be on guard against your love for money. Do not think because you don't make a lot that you don't love money. Think about Jesus when he's teaching Most of his crowds he's teaching to are poor people who cannot read, and he's saying, Don't love money. It doesn't matter what you make. You could be below the poverty line and still love money. It's for every single one of us. It's so alluring. We we are so naturally drawn towards it. Here's what happens in real life. Oftentimes, by God's grace, you and I will stretch in our generosity, we'll stretch. We'll actually give a little bit more. We'll actually, God will give us grace to actually be obedient in significant ways. And what will happen, we grow a little bit and we begin to think, well, I must not love money anymore. Like, like, we need to praise God for the times. Like, if you're here and you're like, I'm giving nothing. I couldn't even imagine giving 10% to anything. Don't think I'm saying, well, if you can't do it now, you might as well quit. It's gonna take time to get there. So when you go from zero to 2%, or 3% to 4%, or 5% to 10, or 10 to 50, whatever the number is. Praise God for those moments. Praise God that you actually are growing in grace. But what happens often, we grow a little bit and we think we're done with it. We think we no longer love money, but I can tell you from personal experience that no matter how much money you make or how much you give, your heart will need constant tending and recalibrating when it comes to money. Do not buy the lie, you can deal with it once and leave it alone, that you can set it and forget it, so to speak, and take care of itself. That's not how your heart works. It needs constant tending and tuning. When I was 23 years old, Lauren, my wife, we just got married, she was still in school. We're making $24,000. And that's when we started tithing to the Austin Stone. And let me tell you right now, that was not out of excess. Okay. That was us saying, "Hey, okay, obedience starts there. We got to start there with our giving." I'm so glad that we did. Especially if you're here at college, students, young people, if you're here, start now. It only gets harder the more money you make and the older you get. Talk to any older saint in here; it does not get easier the more money you make. Start now with that act of obedience, and I'm so happy we did that. I'm so happy we did that. But here's the thing just because you start faithful doesn't mean you'll end faithful. Just because you had a moment of clarity and sobriety and obedience does not mean you'll be that way in every season. And what happened for me and Lauren is it was so great we started with that 10%, but over time what began to happen is that 10% began to hide our own love for money. That 10% began to hide our own love for money. See, here's what happened. We assumed, Lauren and I assumed, okay, we're giving 10%, we clearly don't love money. Of course, we make $24,000 a year. We earn a 500-square-foot apartment. Clearly, we're good. And yet what happened is that 10% blinded us to our own love for money, and all of a sudden, the credit card bills got bigger. And all of a sudden, we had expenditures that were exceeding what we made. And it became very clear to us, oh, something, years later, something's off in our hearts. And here's what We found. We wanted to feel generous and maintain a certain lifestyle at the same time. That's what we wanted. We wanted to feel generous and also have all the fun that we wanted. See, the truth was our 10% had not been out of faith anymore, it was an obligation and we overspent in other areas. We still loved money, we just tricked ourselves. See, we didn't do the hard work of consistently reassessing and going, wait, why are we giving this number? Should we give more? Okay, I'm making more now, Does that, should we increase it? No, let's just go to better restaurants. No, I mean, I know I'm making a little bit more, but we have a kid now, so let's just, let's just keep it there, it's fine. We quit reassessing our generosity, and listen, that's all your sin needs. You will naturally drift towards love of money. You will. Without prayer, without thoughtfulness, without planning, and honestly, without community of other believers who are mature, pressing you, you need no help loving money. Especially in our society, you need no help loving money. So listen, consistently, every couple months, just reassess, how are we doing in giving? If you get a promotion, you get a pay raise, you get a demotion, you lose a job, say, how are we doing in giving? What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Because the circumstances of your life are gonna constantly evolve and there'll be new complex situations that arise that will require a fresh look at your finances and your generosity. There will be seasons where 10% really costs you. Praise God that you're giving. And there'll be seasons where 10%, if you're honest, is out of abundance. It doesn't really cost, it's a normal thing. Some of you have been faithful in that way for years and you haven't reassessed it in years. There will be seasons maybe where you need to save more for long-term financial stewardship. There will be seasons where maybe you need to pay off debt before you give more. Or the solution may be you need to sacrifice even more and pay off debt and save and keep giving. I don't know the answer to every situation, but I do know it's on you as following Jesus to say, all that I have is his, and I'm gonna seek his kingdom first, and I'm gonna prioritize giving towards advancing his kingdom. Because when it comes to your generosity, while I can't tell you every answer to every question, I can't tell you where to start every time. Every time when you're thinking about, okay, there's my budget, is this right, is this good? Every time, go back to the source of generosity. Every time, I'm telling you, go back to Jesus and remember why you do what you do. Without Jesus, this makes no sense, it makes no sense. If without Jesus, get out of here, enjoy brunch, enjoy your life. Who cares? Go back to Jesus, and you need to remember the source of your generosity. Remember the treasure that he really is. As your heart grows cold towards him, so will your generosity. Go back to Jesus. Remember his promises. Remember his authority that says you have to renounce all that you have to follow me. Remember the eternal truth that you're not giving to earn anything. You're giving, you're giving in response to his generosity. 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Remember how much it cost Jesus to have you. It was not easy. It was not cheap. I mean, just remember for a second his wealth in heaven. Just remember for a second, for a moment, consider how much he lost to love you. Remember his poverty. Remember how he said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head remember the cross, remember him crying out in agony as the wrath of God fell on him, all for you. He became impoverished in every possible way. Why? So you could be rich towards God. So you could have approval in storehouses and a future security in storehouses with abundance that God would take care of you because Jesus bought everything remember that. Don't just go to a budget and say, what do I need to do to not get in trouble? Go to your budget and say, I love him more than anything. Why would I ever withhold anything from him? And how do you produce love? Not through willpower, through beholding his greatness. Through thinking about him, through remembering what he's like. So that way, no matter the number he lays before you, no matter the possession, can I beg you, can I beg you to have nothing off limits. For the rest of your life, nothing off limits. No number, no possession. Nothing off limits because he already gave everything for you, nothing was off limits for him. He even lost his father on the cross for you. And as you consider His grace, what the Holy Spirit does, He softens your heart to say, then everything I have is yours. Because you freely gave everything to me. Let's pray together. Father, before we even move into singing and move into the rest of our day, just sober us in this moment. God, help us have self-awareness for all the ways that God, we love money and all the ways we trust money and all the ways we have put limits around you and borders around you because we don't want your authority to touch other parts of our lives and our money and our possessions. God, if there is any people on this planet who needs to confess and repent to you, God, it is us. If there's any people who are completely dependent upon your mercy, God, it is us. If there's any people when it comes to all that we have are humbled by how much we don't trust you, God, it is us. God, make us a people who don't just feel convicted about our money, that we'd actually would obey. God, make us a people who finally get and understand that you are a better treasure. Who finally say, God, I'm serious. I do mean it. Everything. I renounce everything. Whatever is needed, I will do. God, help us from putting up defense mechanisms. Help us from putting up walls and Situations and saying, God, it's impossible. God, give us faith to trust you. Help us remember Jesus that, who gave everything for us. God, it is an incredible thing to follow you, to have your standards be so great and your mercy even greater. God, empower us to show this city what your kingdom is like. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Amen, church, let's stand, let's sing together.